Hello, everyone, and welcome to DataFem, where we engage you with stories of how innovators across the globe are using data to achieve new heights in their respective industries. I'm Danielle, founder of Decayo Data, and before I say anything, I want to say that my heart goes out to all of you struggling in your own ways to stay afloat in this difficult time of social distancing. I hope that through this podcast and through my other content, Decayo Data can be a source of community engagement for our growing data science industry during this time and always, and I encourage you in solidarity to stay strong. Right now, I am with PhD students in sociology at Ohio State University, Eva Warren and Jacob Capish. Eva is my god sister, so we grew up together, and Jacob is my newest friend. We are hiding out in the guest room of my New Orleans home with our respective cats, so please bear with us if you hear feline disruptions of any kind, as well as those from the fan or construction outside. These are uncharted times, but we know you will thoroughly enjoy what we have to say about research, biases, and data, and how we can best survive our current situations. Okay, so tell me a bit about your background. Either of you can go first. You can go first? I can go first. Okay. My name is Eva Warren. I'm a graduate student. It it is. (laughs) My name is Evangeline Warren. (laughs) My name is Evangeline Warren. I'm a graduate student in sociology at Ohio State University. Um, I study health disparities broadly. Um, more specifically, some of my past research has looked at urban and rural health disparities, um, and I'm currently beginning a project looking at health disparities for mixed race and racially ambiguous people. Uh, I'm Jacob Kapesh. Uh, I am a graduate student at The Ohio State University <laughs> in the sociology department, and uh, my research interests are broadly related to urban sociology, criminology, uh, and spatial methods. This is a new challenge for me because I have recorded with friends in the past, but it's been over remote, so I don't get to see any facial expressions <laughs> or a sweet little black kitty that's hanging out. Yes, we have a co- we have a co-host. His name is Oliver. Oh, go announce yourself to the to the microphone. <laughs> he did. Good job, yes. Bean. He's a sweet little black kitty. I'll make sure to post him in the show notes. <laughs> anyway, um, why was PhD your choice? Because, you know, it's it's such a commitment. And nowadays, there's not, for any field, there's not as much like of a guarantee that you will be placed. So I'm lucky. I don't want to go onto the academic job market, which makes this a lot easier um, because I don't have to worry necessarily about what comes next. Um, I came to the decision to get a PhD rather late in my academic career. Um, since I was quite young, I've wanted to be a medical doctor. Um, and 
in college, I knew that to become a better doctor, I needed to broaden my own knowledge outside of the natural sciences um, to really understand the things that were bringing people into a doctor's office that aren't necessarily just the diagnostics. Uh, and so I took sociology and I fell in love with it. Um, I flirted briefly with the idea of getting a master's in public health uh, and realized that although the work that public health does is really important and really valuable, it wasn't the questions I wanted to ask or the research I wanted to do. So that was kind of where I ended up um, leaning more towards sociology. Um, and then the program at OSU specifically does some great stuff with medical sociology and the sociology of health and illness. So it seemed like a really good fit. And you kind of answered this, but like, how will this inform your medical career? And like, yeah. what are people telling you? Because they, I'm sure a lot of people are asking why you didn't just go straight in. Absolutely. So um, after my PhD, I'm hoping to go to med school. Um, I'd like to specialize as an emergency physician. Uh, one of the th interesting things about uh, emergency departments is they can be a really good litmus test of what's going on in a community. One of the things that can often contribute to high physician burnout is the idea that um, physicians are treating the same things over and over and over again, and they're not able to make any substantive societal change to address those changes or to address those um, issues. So, you know, for example, uh, I volunteered as an EMT when I was just out of high school and spent some time in some hospitals in New York. And, you know, I went in on a Friday night in the North Bronx thinking it'd be super exciting. Um, and the entire night was just asthmatics because it was a neighborhood that had a lot of car traffic because huge expressways had been built through these low-income neighborhoods. Um, and, you know, asthma is a community-wide problem, but not necessarily something that individual physicians in an ER can address. Right? They're there to give the albuterol treatment, make sure the person is stabilized, and then say goodbye to them, only to see them a week later with the same problem. So by pairing sociology, um, kind of broader level um, data collection analytics, and then societal change, I'm hoping to kind of reshape the emergency room back towards a triage space and away from kind of the maintenance of care that it's turned into. I actually really relate to that because I was just in the emergency room on Halloween for um, a spiral fracture of my ankle and um, I was there all day and it felt like just being in a general hospital mm -hmm. um, until I got the bill. Then I knew. But yeah, why don't you tell me, Jacob, how you got into PhD? So I actually, I entered undergrad at the University of Georgia uh, as a pre-pharmacy major, so... Wait, what? Yeah. Oh, oh dear. I did not know this. I, I started as a pre-pharmacy major, and I really... <laughs> I'm not <laughs> editing that out, by the way. <laughs> yeah. In our defense, we've only known each other since August, like... So, yeah. Okay. We don't know everyone's <laughs> so, backstory. Anyway. I, yeah, I, but you spend 24-7. Uh, anyway, okay. Yeah. Um... I, <laughs> I thought I really enjoyed chemistry, and then I found that, you know, standing in a lab was not really what I wanted to do with my life, and I just happened to be taking a sociology class, and I fell in love with the questions that they wanted to answer, and how it was really looking at a lot of the injustices and race and uh, economics and just everything that I'd, I'd seen before, but no one had really wanted to understand uh, basically where I had grown up. Um, and so I got into criminology and how people were treated differently, like racial disparities. Um, particularly, I'd been looking at private probation in the state of Georgia and how that was basically serving as a debtor's prison, um, primarily affecting people of color. 
and I definitely wanted to get involved with that, but I didn't want to be a part of the system, so I knew that I had to get into research uh, like my professor had, uh, my mentor, Dr. Sarah Shannon, and uh, initially I thought that maybe working for like a public health agency like the CDC may have been like a good route and maybe sort of addressing these problems, but I did an internship at the CDC and they really weren't answering the kind of questions I wanted them to. Uh, and you could see a lot of red tape, uh, lack of racial and economic justice. You can see this now with the coronavirus and uh, they're pretty much keeping their mouths shut and kind of following the bureaucratic BS, but uh, that's not something I want to do. And so it really steered me towards academia. So you both have a focus on race as part of your studies, even though you've chosen very different disciplines to apply it to. I think that is what drives a lot of sociological research today is this understanding that um, whatever kind of social statuses we carry interact and impact our daily lives in a multitude of arenas, right? So your race is going to affect how you're treated in hospitals, full stop. Mm -hmm. Your race is going to affect how you're treated in the criminal justice system, full stop. And if you're biracial, that's not really... It's clear what it is. Um, or your race and your gender are going to interact to mean that you're treated differently mm -hmm. in those settings as well okay. than someone who might be the same gender but a different race or the same race but a different gender. Gotcha. Well, how do these discrepancies, or should I call them differences, in gender and race factor into the data processing that you're doing day by day within your respective areas of focus? So as it, as it currently stands, there I, there's no data on county level pre uh, pre trial jail incarceration rates. So really, who's we have arrest rates, but we don't have incarceration rates before people are going um, to trial based on race on a county level. And I think that's a really big part of the criminal justice system. Unfortunately, that there there just isn't data on it. I was pretty shocked to find that. Um, so I'm, I'm resorting to imprisonment rates uh, based on race on a county level. And so that is, that is something I've been having an issue with. Uh, How do you think that data is going to reveal itself, if ever? Actually, there's a, there's a pretty big um, gap in, in criminal justice data because Congress and both like state legislative governments in general don't require a lot of data reporting uh, when it comes to criminal justice issues. Uh, that's why we don't have an official database for police killings, um, which is horrible, right? So I think really Congress needs to step up to the plate and require more data reporting. That's an interesting dichotomy because on the one hand, we have all this historical data that goes back years that nobody's processed, mm -hmm. you know, on a variety of topics. I mean, a lot of it is medical um, records that, you know, have been you know, recorded for years, but nobody's done anything about them. And then we still have a lack of data. Do you run into similar problems yeah. with medical data? So actually, like the crux of my research question centers on the idea of what race means in this country and how we interpret and understand it. Um, the medical system is highly bureaucratized, so there are a lot of forms that get filled out with questions about people's race or income or education or gender or age and all of those fun things. 
Um, and because a lot of these forms haven't changed in a long time or are relying on kind of antiquated ideas, there's this idea that race is actually something that matters in the medical field in terms of uh, what diseases a person might get um, or that there's this kind of biological element. Uh, when you have multiracial or racially ambiguous people entering those spheres and um, a medical provider is being prompted to uh, choose a racial category for this person, uh, the medical provider doesn't always ask the person what their ancestry is, right? Like, so ancestry makes sense why that would have a biological component, right? Genetics has a biological component, but race is not genetic, right? Like, let's just get that out of the way. Race is not biological. It's socially constructed, but it's still socially real, right? There are consequences to looking the way that you do, but the way that you look doesn't necessarily impact your biology. For socially ambiguous and or racially ambiguous and multiracial people, when they're in those sorts of situations, um, a medical provider is already making judgments about their race. Uh, you walk into uh, if you're someone who looks like me, right? I'm half Indian, half white. Um, in a lot of contexts, I get read as Latina. Um, a lot of people make assumptions about me, about my class status, about whether or not I can speak English. Um, all of these things, whether or not I can afford treatment, before they even talk to me. Um, and I think that, you know, this kind of moment where we're seeing, um, people try to assign a single category to people who do not fit into those single categories is a really interesting tension that challenges the dominant racial hierarchies. This is all to say that there are sometimes significant problems in the data, right? If the forms are being filled out by medical providers, um, a lot of the relationships we think we see, um, are not necessarily accurate. Uh, and that kind of perpetuates this idea that there are racial bases to health disparities, um, right? It's not that, uh, it, the, it shifts the question from uh, black and white people are treated differently in our country and therefore they have different health outcomes and instead becomes the incorrect question of uh, black and white people are fundamentally different and that's why they have hmm. the health problems. Um, there's been some really interesting research uh, looking at people who are white passing, um, even if they're not ancestrally white and find that they have the same health advantages in the medical system. Um, and I think that that like really illuminates this problem. Uh, if people think you're white, you're going to fare better in the medical system, regardless of whatever your racial background is. And that, uh, it, that is a direct challenge to kind of the biological essentialism argument around race. Um, but it also means that anytime I look at an aggregated data set, I have to question whether the racial assignments of that data set are actually accurate. Um, because most of the time they don't account for people who don't fit into the boxes listed or might need to check more than one. And so it's things like that, you know, there's not great data on multiracial and racially ambiguous people. And those are populations that are growing in this country um, and are kind of sitting in this weird nebulous space where we don't really account for their lived experience. And that's where I'm hoping um, to kind of stop the gap, which will mean I will have to collect original data because mm -hmm. it just, it doesn't exist. Speaking of original data, What's been on my mind a lot lately is self-report data and how do we trust it? Because a lot of times when we collect self-report data, we're getting messages from people that they may want to be true, but aren't actually accurate and they don't even realize it. So is there a way to get the most accurate responses by the way we ask the question? If you ask people outright, are you anxious about Corona? That's going to be a very different response than like, 
have you felt this, this, or this? Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot, like, language is loaded, and yeah. if you use loaded language, people aren't going to interact with it the way right. that we, they want, you want them to. But how do you know what question, like, how do you even know how so to phrase that? we have to do, like, testing of our surveys before we actually deploy them to mm-hmm. our sample right. population. You wouldn't ask people if they're racist also i mean they're not they're everyone's gonna say no for the most part right Mm -hmm. so you'd have to ask them about like their behaviors and stuff like that that may be somewhat underlying for example for me i'm not going to straight up ask people what race are you because that's going to put the exact same problem that i'm trying to identify and unpack what i'll probably do instead is ask uh you know what is your ancestry or where are your relatives? Like if like, where, what are your ethnic groups? What are your ethnic identities? Um, I'm not going to ask people like, have you had a bad experience with a doctor? Because so much of it is normalized. Like you think of the stories of people who are, um, who identify as women going into healthcare spaces um, and being told that their pain doesn't matter, or that it's not legitimate and things like that. That's such a normalized experience that we don't really question it anymore. Um, instead, I'll say, how many times have you had an interaction with a medical provider in the past year? And then I'll do a follow-up of how many times has that medical provider like assigned you a race that does not match how you currently describe yourself? Mm-hmm. Things like that, right? So it, it's about... It's about um, it's, you're never going to be able to ask just the one question, are you a racist or are you anxious about COVID-19? What you're going to do instead is you're going to kind of design a bunch of questions that dance around that mm-hmm. um, to get a fuller picture of how people are feeling, acting, and behaving. Yeah. You're never going to get the perfect question that will like give a streamlined response from everybody. Right. No, but when you are doing a survey, especially something that's like, a little more on the qualitative side, you're able to give space for people to explain more. So you can ask the question and get your nice little numeric response or the checkbox response or whatever that Mm -hmm. gives you data that's easier to analyze. Well, speaking of analyze, let's move on to talking a little bit about our current situation. I know that since you've been here visiting me, you found out that your classes are more or less moving online. And I want to hear your thoughts about your school situation and then maybe we can move on to making some statements about what's going on in the world as a whole with this virus i would say we're probably in a better position than most because we're so early in the program that we're not trying to do interviews with people or like deploy large-scale analysis like we're, we're still in the coursework phase so when um, OSU announced that so we get an extra week of spring break and then we're online for the rest of the semester. That's currently how things stand, um, likely to change or adjust as we learn more about COVID-19. Um, but we have friends who are trying to do qualitative projects right now whose interviews have been canceled and kind of the rug just pulled out from under their feet because people, rightfully so, don't necessarily feel safe meeting up to do an interview. And I think we're going to have to see a lot of creative thinking about, you know, can we do phone interviews or video interviews? What do you lose when you do that? Um, What are you kind of missing out on? Um, In terms of coursework, I would say the faculty have been really exemplary in figuring out ways around this. They've, you know, they've, we're all in this together. And I think kind of people understand that. Um, So our classes are for the most part moving to Zoom. We uh, have digital licenses for the software we need to complete our assignments. Um, And I think it will not be fun to be by ourselves a lot of the time. 
Um, but I am not necessarily concerned at this point about getting my work done um, as long as I don't get sick. Um, what is unfortunate uh, are that some people in the program that are further along as well, they, ha they will have to um, take their comprehensive exams to become PhD candidates or will have to defend uh, potentially online in front of a camera, which is really unfortunate. It sounds incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. True. Yeah, I had the pleasure of listening to one of my grandmother's students' defenses recently, and she's been a professor pretty much her whole life. So she fought really hard to be there in person. I mean, it was hard for her to get down the hall. It's a big university. She can't move around very well. And she wanted to be at this defense in person. So to have, you know, it's clearly important. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, keeping it in the family, my mom has been working really hard to make online learning, a, you know, um, comprehensive, like unlimited uh, source of learning. Uh, so, you know, I, and I want to get her on the podcast at some point when she's not in crisis mode trying to onboard everybody, you know. <laughs> um, so I think for people who have been really pushing an online system of work and learning, this is incredible. Um, not, I mean, of course, that could have sounded insensitive, but I think people will know what I mean. I think it's hard because we want to believe that it isn't serious because it's scary. Um, but, you know, we do have to acknowledge that we have a shared responsibility and a mutual care for each other. And taking the steps we can to protect the most vulnerable amongst us is really important. Um, when you read what's been happening in Italy in terms of triaging and things like that, we also have to understand, you know, there have been a lot of insensitive comments about, you know, oh, well, the only people who are going to get sick oh, are the people who are immunocompromised or old. So, like, it's not that big a deal. No, no, we know, we all know people who fall we into that. We all love people And we all fall. love people who fall into those categories. And the reality is that in a triage-based system, the medical system in the U.S. is not going to be able to cope with everyone who gets sick, regardless of whether or not they were healthy before they got sick. Mm. Um, and we're and, and like that's what we're trying to prevent. We're trying to prevent the overload of the hospital system. We're trying to give the medical personnel a fighting chance. Um, and I think that it's really important that we understand kind of the, the reasons why we're doing this. You know, we're at least we're in an age where you can be very close to people online. I mean, if you think about it, people have these online relationships that are very deep and very emotional, and they've never met. I mean, it's true. You can even have, like, a romantic connection and never have met, like, ever. So, I mean, and most of my friends are across the country, living all <laughs> sorts of places, including you. So I think, you know, it's... And, I, of course, I have really close friendships here, but my friendships that span across decades, I mean that's that's in New York or, you know, Columbus where you are, the West Coast or even For context, Danielle has known me since I was born. Yeah. So it has been decades. That's true, that's true. I was I was present I, I thought I was present at the birth thing at some point. Like I remember You were not present at... I, I didn't go to the hospital at any point, really. Uh, they got me out of the hospital pretty fast. Oh, well, I mean, if she made a run for it, I guess. I, <laughs> I don't know. Our parents will have to fact check this. I didn't realize this was up. a dine and dash operation. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I didn't make it. Um. <laughs> I'm sure my mother will comment on Twitter about whether or not Oh, I'm no. Present. Oh, no. 
<laughs> well, well, well. Yes, that was um, yeah, factual error. <laughs> See, I reported what I wanted to be true. I wanted to be a thought. Self-report data can't be trusted. <laughs> oh, I mean, granted, I definitely don't know what happened at my own birth. I wasn't really in a position to be paying attention, so don't trust my self-report data. I wouldn't data put it past you. <laughs> Well, there is the infamous picture of me holding you being terrified. Yeah. I think that was the first time you met me. I was scared of everything at that point. So, yeah. Anyway, is there anything else you want to say about your work or the corona, the the future of our our, our dead world, <laughs> our dying world? I think we're... We're potentially at a turning point for when it comes to some some racial and economic justice sort of issues here with um, the lack of testing and who's who, who's getting testing right now. I mean, it's celebrities and it's politicians and the common people aren't. And I think that something like a insurance for maybe not Medicare for all, but I'm just saying that affordable insurance uh, would sure be great in a time like this um, because of how many people are uninsured and it's it's a little frightening knowing right. you know the unknown i would love to see debt relief at some point right people are buying so many groceries now that they don't have in their budget I mean, including me right like people are spending an extra 100 bucks that they don't have allocated um, or their electric bills are going to be higher um, you know, things like a student loan relief program right now would give people a lot more leeway in their budgets. It, this is very much a thing of we're all in this together. And the more precautions that healthy people and people who are in a position to take time off or to work from home take, the better it will be for the people who can't do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's when we think about sharing the burden of this um, and really, you know, recognizing the uh, economic disparities in who can and cannot take safety precautions, the burden is very much on those who can take those precautions to do so, um, so that those who can't are safer. Well, thank you so much for being here, you know, for company to visit, of course, but also being on DataFem to share all of your opinions about some very intense topics. That's what this podcast is here for, to circulate data about things that we might not otherwise consider. And speaking of that, my one thing that I want to leave my listeners with is a quick encouragement to be careful not only about the data you consume, but about the data that you are yourself creating. Now is as good a time as any to start delving into some open source data projects but just be sure that if you do decide to play with coronavirus data, that you take into account how vulnerable our society as consumers is right now before you post online and start making assumptions that other people might view as facts. That said, I encourage all of you to stay curious, stay safe, and continue to communicate about the data you find and the questions you have. You can always reach out to me on Twitter at DecayoData or via email at Decayo at DecayoData.com. I am happy to talk about anything and everything. I have been doing some discounted sessions to help people onboard to a remote style of work 
and I'm hosting, as usual, the weekly Data Everyone Twitter chat on Thursday. The hashtag is Data Everyone. If you show up at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, you will find it. And if you feel like our content has helped you in any way, you are always welcome to become a patron and receive extra exclusive content at patreon.com slash datafem. And I look forward to engaging and hearing from all of you in this tough time. We can stick together.